0: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
1: We are always looking on the hunt for little nuggets of good news that are going to make you feel better about stuff and little nuggets of hope that maybe your taxes might not go up as much as you're thinking they might. Now remember, about four months ago, we were told 14.2%. And everybody gasped and half of the population passed out. (laughs) Then about, I don't know, a month, month and a half ago, maybe, maybe even less than that, we heard it was going to be 7.9% and a quarter of the people who had passed out came too. But there are still some people who need some good news. Well, my next guest might be able to bring that. You'll remember back when that 14.2% was raised right around that time, Councillor Ted McMeekin, Ward 15 Councillor, suggested a 4% cap on tax increases for the city of Hamilton of the municipally generated part of that cap. Well, on Friday, that motion is going to come before Council for a vote. Uh, Councillor McMeekin joins you now. Councillor, thanks for doing this tonight.
2: Oh, my pleasure, Scott.
1: Uh, A lot of people I'm hearing, or I think you, may, you may have told me this, or I might have heard it through the grapevine. A lot of people, when you proposed that tax cap, expressed very much strong feelings in favor of this, correct?
3: Absolutely. It was uh, an incredible experience. Uh, overwhelming.
1: So this thing then sort of went silent, and I think a lot of people forgot about it. Including maybe some counselors, i I'm not sure, because all of a sudden it, uh, on Monday or Tuesday, I guess, it, or maybe even late last week, it popped back up. What happened? How did this come to be now this week and how did it re- sort of revive?
3: Well, I think it was kind of good it went silent because it was like a, a bit of a sword uh, uh, over the council, uh, sending a cap as uh, something new. And um, uh, to their credit, uh, the mayor's credit and everybody else's credit around the horseshoe, they got to work. And they uh, sliced the uh, 14.2 down to 7.9, 2.6% of which is uh, is a provincial tag on. Uh, they passed laws requiring us to add uh, 2.6 uh, to our tax bill. Uh, the premier promised he'd make us whole. Ah, uh, financially, but uh, there's no evidence of that. I think maybe we're we're being left in the hole uh, on the provincial side. But uh, so that leaves us with a situation municipally generated, where we're at currently at 5.3 percent. That includes one percent set aside for a host, the hospitals. Um, the province says they want us to contribute 400 million. We just don't have that kind of money. So I expect that'll be set aside until we see a, a plans. So we're now down that one percent goes or down, down down to 4.3 percent to get to four is going to uh, require us to find about uh, 16 million in cuts from a, a, a two point something billion dollar budget we should be able to do that
1: it, well it sounds I'll, I'll use the phrase easy in quotes it sounds easy the challenge, I guess, is that everybody around the council table sees things in their own worldview or with a little different opinion. And so what Councillor McMeekin might think is unnecessary, another councillor might think is absolutely essential. It's maybe not as easy as it would seem.
3: When was it never thus? I mean, that's <laughs> so true. The, uh, you know, 16 people around the table, they were all elected the same way. They're bright, articulate, effective, uh, by and large respected, uh, but it raises the question uh, are they uh, are they reflective of the community that they're making decisions about uh, i don't think there are very many people in the city who would uh, would uh, tolerate uh, i know 14.2% and uh, many are having trouble with the 7.9 um, uh, municipalities are the least uh, able uh, in terms of flexibility you can't run a deficit uh, uh, property tax and development charges are your primary sources of revenue. So we're, we're somewhat limited there. So you've, you've, you've got tough choices to make.
1: But in order to get to the position where that 16 million has to be cut, we go back to your motion of getting the 4% tax cap. Is I, that going to pass on Friday? I think so.
3: I, I have every reason to believe it will at, uh, um, as I say, if the hospital thing is held off for another year, uh, we're at four, three, um, if we can't shave, uh, three tenths of a percent, uh, off the, uh, uh, current projection. And I think we will, by the way, uh, many of the counselors around the horseshoe have got uh, a whole slew of ideas around how to, uh, how to cut costs. And, uh, uh, there are a series of motions being prepared by different councillors now to uh, articulate, uh, you know, their specific uh, uh, ideas around uh, cost-cutting measures, and uh, I think we're going to get there. In fact, in fact, my goal now is is to try to get uh, the municipal regenerated uh, uh, portion of the tax bill down to 3.2 percent. If we can, if we can eliminate, uh, you know, a full percent. Um, you know, with the 2.6 from the province, we can come in at uh, 5.8, which was the same as we had last year. And even then we had uh, a fair bit of negative reaction. But uh, but at least people would know that we've done our job.
1: There, there is a really interesting thing also at play here, because uh, when I talked to you earlier in the week, you had thought that there might be eight people on board with the voting for this tax cap. Now that could change. But if there's eight that would fail because a tie vote at council 16 councilors, uh, a tie vote loses. But what that would, the message that would send though, is if there's eight who are saying we will only accept 4%, that means if other councilors brought forward a budget that ultimately was higher than that, and those eight stuck together, they could defeat the budget. They could defeat the motion. So essentially if there are eight, even if your motion fails. For all intents and purposes, if they stick together, there will be a four percent tax cap. Correct.
3: Well, that's a very astute observation. You're absolutely correct. Uh, uh, unless and until there are nine votes for a budget, the budget uh, uh, will not move forward. So, if there are eight, and there were eight who spoke uh, initially in favor of uh, of four percent when it looked like an impossible target, now that we're potentially so close at four three. Um, you know, I think their confidence on, on getting to 4% has been buoyed.
1: One more thing. Uh, we, we wish we had more time to talk about this, but it is the motion that you're bringing specifically and only for 2024, or is it a budget? Is it a motion to make as a rule that the tax cap in Hamilton would be 4%?
3: No, it's just for this year. Um, circumstances, uh, you can't be hypothetical about these things. I mean, uh, who knows what, uh, uh, the senior levels of government might do. They might show up all of a sudden with an interest in homelessness and uh, and uh, r- removing uh, restrictions on collecting development charges, and that would change the whole picture.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, look, it, it's, as I say, I think people are looking for any slivers of optimism that maybe they're not going to be paying as much, and uh, this is certainly one of those. Uh, Councillor Ted McMeekin, Ward 15 Councillor, thank you for the time today. Thank you, Scott. Take
2: care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: The world's largest cruise ship is setting out on its maiden voyage this weekend. It's from Royal Caribbean. It's called the Icon of the Seas or Royal Caribbean. You choose. Either way, it's Icon or Icon, no, it's Icon. Icon of the Seas uh, and it is going off this weekend with its maiden voyage. Some of you listening may have a cruise booked on this ship who knows or you've been on other of the giant royal caribbean ships from oasis to wonder of the sea symphony all those ones anyway if you are if you have been if you will there is a very visible very important part of this ship that was built right here in Hamilton. The centerpiece of this ship is this giant, enormous dome at the front of the ship that also has a pool in it for swimming shows and diving shows, and it involves massive underwater hydraulic stages and everything else. Those are built at a place called Handling, Handling Specialty, uh, whose boss, the guy who owns the, or runs the place, uh, president of it, is Tom Beach, who joins us now. Tom, how are you today?
0: Uh, good, Scott.
1: I would bet that um, they don't have signs up on these ships, I don't think, that says this stage, this equipment brought to you by handling specialty. So do you ever get people who say to you when somehow they, when they've when they been on one of these ships that, that do they learn that it's your handiwork that they were looking at?
0: Uh, well, they, they frown on any uh, large advertisement on these stages, of course, but uh, typically it's, it's 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 word of mouth uh, quite quite honestly you know when someone having a conversation or perhaps reads one of our uh our blogs or something of this nature that that, that we put out and, and ask the question but, yeah, i mean it's one of our top marketing um, appeals to people because it's entertainment and it's it's its world it's iconic and it's it's the world's best at this stage we've done many for them um so over time yeah people are getting pretty used to us doing these these cruise ships and these Massive, uh, entertaining theaters and such, and nothing will be different.
1: Yeah. Again, As I don't,
0: with Icon.
1: Yeah. I don't know how many people from around here know about this. I know, I know there have to be a whole lot of people from Hamilton, from the listening audience, from the area who have been on these ships from Oasis and onward, these giant ships, there had to be. Probably don't know that a Hamilton company was building stuff in Hamilton, a Grimsby slash Hamilton company was building stuff to be on these. How do you get involved in this? How do you land with a, a spot on, in this company and on these ships?
0: I mean, the <clears throat> I, I'll try to shorten the story for you. I mean, the, the company designs, uh, engineers, and builds very, very large um, moving machinery for all different kinds of industries, and in particular a lot of very large hydraulic lifting systems. And in the entertainment industry, which is the, the trough we're talking about here, um, we've done a lot of work with you know, Disney and Mervis Productions, uh, Universal Studios, Cirque du Soleil. And about 2005, we received some calls from some of the creative types that were working in developing the new series at that time for Royal Caribbean called the Oasis Series. And uh, yeah, they saw a show that we'd uh, performed and um, produced back in 97 in, in Vegas. And uh, They fell in love with it, and we were looking for a version that they could put on a vessel. And the end result is the, uh, the Aqua Theater throughout the Oasis series. And as of Saturday, when they launch, uh, the Icon and the Aqua Dome will house yet another handling specialty underwater system.
1: This uh, There have to be a lot of companies, I don't know, but I'm assuming, there have to be a lot of companies that make lift systems or do generally the kinds of things that you do around the world why you Why why is this a particularly difficult thing or unique thing to you to make something like this
0: well, you might have hit the perfect word when you said difficult so yeah lifting i mean it comes in so many different forms and the term is is generic by nature but our firm wanted to uh separate ourselves from um commodity based type product uh things that were off the shelf standard products if you will we really wanted to um be challenged and we fell into this um this this pattern with prototype equipment where it hadn't been done before or it had severe uh, challenges difficulties to it and you know underwater brings so many uh, challenges to the, the operating of the machinery, you know, steel and water. It, it wants to deteriorate from the moment it begins. You know, protection of the fluidics and in the in the environment and the, in the, in the swimmers and things of that nature. So the selection of all the materials, the coatings that go on it. So a lot of companies um, think that, you know, it might be easy to do, but it, it, it really isn't. And uh, we have a saying that confidence is what you have before you understand the problem. And if you think about that, you know, a lot of people will step away. Maybe, maybe um, the anxiety of having to do special and not seeing the potential of a business there. But we, we kept nibbling away at it, and we've created a, a, a super business, 60 years old this year. And uh, we're very well known for when it's difficult and challenging to give us a call.
1: How many ships have you done now?
0: So we're just about finished number seven in Cadiz, in, pardon me, saint Nazaire, France which is the 7th in the series, so that's the Utopia of the Seas. Uh, As of Saturday, we'll go up to number 8, which is the Icon, and we're under contract for uh, a few more of those.
1: So there is actually these things currently being built in your Hamilton warehouse for the next one?
0: At this very moment, yes, correct, and have been so... The last two years and we'll probably to finish this contract will be probably another two to three years um as they build the cruise ships i mean the cruise ships take about a year and a half to two years to produce
1: Is there any difference? So up until now, when they started the Oasis of the season, now for, for those people who don't know, have never seen these ships, I'm probably going to be talking in gibberish because it's not going to make any sense, but anyone who has seen one of these and knows what we're talking about at the back of the ship for the Oasis ships, which were gigantic, they had this aqua theater, which was diving and, you know, shows and stuff like that. The new one is at the front of the ship, but it's up much, much, much higher on the ship. Does that change anything?
0: Well, for, I, uh, without getting too technical from an engineering perspective, the fact that these vessels are, are rocking, you know, through, through the through the uh, influences of the ocean. And when you are close to the water, the influence back and forth is there's less energy. When you're up at the higher level, it has more of a swing to it, if you will. So they move from level 6 at the stern to level 16 at the front. So all of the energy is amplified significantly as a result of that move. Um, So the containment and management of the water, which is moving around us and and banging against us. So we had to put quite a few uh, additional engineering features into the product just to manage the loads that we would, uh, we would absorb as a result of them putting the Aquadome on, on level 16.
1: Yeah, the whole thing just sounds remarkably complicated, which, uh, you know, w- even if we had a full six-hour show, I don't know that you, you could explain <laughs> the <laughs> engineering behind this, but it like, it like even, ev- like I was thinking earlier that, okay, you know what, you build one, you just replicate it, and you do it for all the future ships. The reason I asked that is because, you know, these things, it seems they're always looking to add something, change something, Thing, that would seemingly require that you are constantly changing something and adding something.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, when, you, when you're when you doing something, say, three times, like this contract calls for for three different uh, individual projects, if you will, ICOM one, two, and three, it, it's called lessons learned. I mean, we're going to do the prototype, and the next time we're going to say, wow, next time we do this, we're going to do it this way and that way. So there's that part of it. But there's also the part where the Royal Caribbean production uh, folks, you know, they they work through their own shows with their own cues and their own challenges, and they see opportunities to to not so much save money, but operationally improve it. So, yeah, in about four to five months after running, there's usually a, some chat about, hey, Tom, what are, or Tom, rather, hand, like specialty, what about this? What about that? How do you see this? How do you see that? So we have made tweaks and turns uh, along the way with it. Uh, as opposed to you know a one-off kind of thing, and you finish it, and then it's sort of like well uh, you know if we do it again, if we ever did it again or something similar, we might change this and might change that just to, for improvement, continuous improvement. Right.
1: If you are uh, if you're going on one of these ships, uh, now you can know that Hamilton is uh, is on there as part of it. If you're not and you have no idea what we're talking about because you have not even seen these ships again, it this is. Uh, icon of the Seas is the size of a Central American country. I mean, it really is. This thing is enormous. Uh, go take a look online and uh, you'll see what we're talking about. Uh, Tom Beach, President of Handling Specialty. Thanks for doing this, Tom. Thanks for having me,
0: Scott. You're listening
2: to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: There was a, um, a report that came out late last week. Uh, it was on CBC's Marketplace. Uh, it was also involving British researchers at the University of Bristol And they were looking at when you watch a sporting event now, how much of the time, what percent of the time that you're watching a sporting event, are you being exposed to gambling ads? Whether that's visually because something is on the screen or whether that's somebody talking about something to do with gambling. What is the percentage of time that you are exposed to gambling ads? I don't know what your guess would be. One person When I mentioned at the top of the show that we were going to be doing this, one person wrote in and said 85% of the time. No, 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 it's not that high. It's not that high, but it is still high, I think. 21% of the time you spent watching every sports broadcast on average is selling gambling. Now, there are two ways to look at this. There is the one side that says, this is building sports this is something people want this is something that's giving people something they enjoy this is free market this is legal then there's the other side who says this is normalizing gambling this is dangerous this is too much let me bring in steve McAllister. he look got the right line here uh steve is the editor-in-chief of gaming news canada joins us now steve how are you today
2: hey great got you
1: I'm excellent. Thank you for doing this. Really appreciate you jumping on and talking about this because, uh, you. I mean, look, you're the editor-in-chief of Gaming News Canada, but I don't think that it would be a shock to you that there are people on both sides of this argument, some who feel this is a terrific thing, that's just, this has now become legalized and people are taking advantage and others who say they're concerned.
2: Yeah, that's a great way to put it, Scott. I mean, I think it's this industry became legal and regulated in Ontario. Uh, it'll be two years ago in April and you have on oh, fifty fifty new businesses in the process of uh, operating sports betting and what you call online online games for customers. And, and yeah, I think when you get a new industry like that, they're going to advertise, going to want to attract customers. But at the same time, I get the concerns of people with the easy access now to to apps to to play online casino or online poker or online slots and. Obviously, with uh, your my background to, to bet on sports, uh, a lot e- easier access. Than maybe there was 20 years ago. And
1: just to clarify, did you say there are 55 new companies who are in this industry now in Ontario legally?
2: There are there are 49, 49 operators now, uh, Scott, who have uh, commercial deals with Ontario, which is a government agency that kind of builds uh, commercial agreements with with company wanting to come in the province. We're talking about the the fan duels and bet MGMs and and, uh, points bets of the world. And that doesn't include the Ontario Lottery Gaming Corporation, which for sports fans operates uh, ProLine Plus.
1: When, Not exactly the same time. It was a few years before cannabis. Now you're going to wonder why I'm bringing up cannabis, but cannabis became legal in this province. And there were a ton of companies that tried to get in some have been successful some have not been successful do you expect the same thing is going to happen in this industry that we've got 49 now but the wheat is going to be separated from the chaff and we're going to see fewer than that down the road or do you see that number continuing to go up
2: no it's going to go down, scott if you talk to people around the industry they'll they'll tell you there's going to be some form of shrinkage and consolidation at some some point and and some of these companies will get bought by bigger by bigger companies, but they're definitely shrinking in the market, and we're probably going to see that when the two-year end reverse up on April.
1: Did we know um, enough about The industry and the, the, did we know enough about what to expect? And when I say we, I mean the government. Was enough known about what was going to happen or what needed to be done? Or has this been a, do you believe, a learning process even for those who are overlooking this industry?
2: I don't think, Scott, the government uh, expected the wave of, uh, uh, you know, advertising and marketing and sponsorship and social media posts. That came with opening up the, the marketplace and again uh just for context for your listeners i mean the ontario uh, gambling market the regulated market is one of the largest regulated markets in north america right now one of the largest regulated markets in in the world so you're talking about the billions of dollars being wagered um uh each year in in ontario and yeah i think there was there People were caught off guard by the by the avalanche of advertising at the beginning, and then, as we've seen, if you're a sports fan, you watch sports and you watch TSN um, companies trying to integrate sports betting into into NHL or NBA or Major League Baseball broadcast. So, I think certainly people weren't expecting that wave of, of branding at the at the outset.
1: Uh, you know what? You're 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 absolutely right, Steve. Because I think that one of the surprises. To me, uh, maybe not to other people, but to me is with most things, let's say, you know, like for example, beer has always been a, a, you know, advertising on hockey broadcast for as long as I can remember, probably as long as you can remember, but I don't ever remember don cherry or ron McLean back in the day cracking a molson's while they were in the middle of coach's corner it was it was there it was an advertiser but it wasn't integrated into the programming the same way that odds or gambling seems to have been integrated into the broadcasting the way it is now
2: yeah what i would say scott is some some companies have done a better job than others um I think uh, hockey night in Canada sportsnet, they it, it was really clumsy the way they tried to make sports into into hockey night and Canada in the in the first year, and I think a lot actually a lot of criticism for the sports betting advertising has come from C- Canadians who watch hockey night in Canada and just felt it was too much. Um, you know, it seems to me that this, the sports interaction ties with hockey night Canada. So, a little bit more aimless this year, and and I think. Commercials with Mitch Marner, Leon Draisaitl, and Chris Pronger. They're, 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 those guys aren't giving you betting tips. It's more, more a bit of fun, and so. And I think FanDuel, the relationship that FanDuel has with TSN, um, it's worked for a I know there'll be people out there who'll say that uh, there's too much FanDuel foray sure on on TSN as well.
1: As I say, you're working as the editor in chief of Gaming News Canada. You must get feedback. I'm guessing from people about this industry. Did you hear, or have you heard people saying, "Look, I don't mind sports betting, but man, I want to watch a game, and all I seem to get is people talking about wagering." Have you heard that from people?
2: Yeah, it, it, certainly, uh, Scott. And again, like like you, I mean, I'm I'm at the arenas, I'm at the ballparks, I and mean, I'm I'm living up here in King now in, in rural Ontario, so when I'm at the golf course in the summer, people will talk about the number of bets. I will say that there has been a pulling back of the advertising, and, and as this, this market mature, which is starting to do, uh, companies aren't going to have to spend much money on advertising and marketing because they've acquired customers. And, and like I said, we've seen that pullback, and I think actually once we get to the Super Bowl next month, uh, you're going to see less of that presence in these gaming companies, on television especially.
1: It does say something, I think, about how big the, for lack of a better word, black market sports gambling market must have been if there's this much of an industry for this. There had to have been a lot of people who were gambling before, or it's created a whole new market. Which one do you think it is?
2: Yeah, no, I think you make a great point, Scott. I mean, if you, this industry, like, betting is Sports betting and, and gaming has been along uh, has been around in Canada for for 25 25 plus years. Um, what's different here is now you have a market where there's regulation and companies have to follow follow rules and it is uh, it is a safer environment for customers. Uh, there's also been a change though with with uh, w- in the digital space where now uh, it's, it is easy to have access. To, to sportsbook apps and to play on online casino games on on your phone, so that, that had to change. But I think anybody thought that 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 there hadn't been any sports betting in Ontario or across Canada before uh, single event sports betting was legalized in 2021. You're all you know yourselves.
1: Oh no, hundred uh, percent. Clearly, it existed. I I do wonder whether all this advertising has been designed to build a new audience that didn't necessarily exist for gambling before, or if it's designed to lure the share, the percentage of the gambling audience to the particular gambling site?
2: Yeah, no, I, I think it's a little bit of both got out I, I think for sure um this, this, the sport the sports betting companies they, they will tell you that advertising on television or or having a you know, fan duel sponsor T S N Overdrive for example that they're trying to get Sports fans become sports betters. Um, it's no different that that a beer company would be trying to get uh, sports fans to become a, a molson drinker or, or a labat drinker, or a craft beer drinker. So, uh, but at the same time, it's a very very competitive, as we talked about at the at the outset. And 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 again, so you are um, these these companies are also trying to attract those people who do better her who, who online game on a regular basis.
1: The one I would argue, and maybe you feel otherwise, but to me, the one, if critics are out there and they are out there, the one thing that they are most commenting on and most concerned about is the normalization of gambling. And I would suggest, especially for younger people who are maybe weren't gambling before, but this is now what you're just sort of supposed to do. Is that a, is that a justifiable concern?
2: If you have if if you do have the presence of of, of uh gambling companies on television, on on social media, I, I think it's fair to say that normalize that. The one thing I will point out, Scott, is it's really um you know, you have to be over the age of nineteen to bet and and a f fifteen or sixteen year old boy or girl just can sign up for a sports book app. It's just not that not that easy. There's a lot of uh a lot of checks and balances put in place that that don't allow that to uh to, to happen, and again, I think the universe, if you look at university students there's been betting universities and colleges even going back to the days when when I was a university student and it was a few a few decades ago but but again, I think the the having those games on a smartphone or being able to place a bet on a smartphone now and and the other factor as well is that in play become highly popular, so uh, it's not uncommon. If, if you're a sports fan, the sport that you'll be sitting in front of your um, sitting at the TV night watching the Leafs and Jets games, and, and you'll be placing bets while the game's going on.
1: Just we got we only got to go here in a second, but just on that last point um, about the checks and balances. So I'm a 15 year old kid who is on my smartphone, and I am intrigued by these gambling ads. And so I decide I want to go and make a bet through one of these services. How, how is it done that I cannot get on there? Because with a lot of other sites or things online, you can quite easily get through the checks and balances. How, how do the companies make sure that you do have to be, you are of the age that you have to be?
2: Yeah, so you would have to give uh, you would have to give a credit card info or, or bank info to withdraw money, Scott. And and again, that's I not, I don't imagine many fifteen year olds have a have a credit card. Uh, when you sign up for a for an account, it's uh, it wants to know your profession or whether you're a college student. That you have to submit your birthday. You have to actually submit. You have to take a a picture of your a photo ID and and download it on a sportsbook app. So this is a, a pretty intensive uh, pro- um, process to, uh, to be accepted as a sportsbook customer. And one thing, again, I think that's where the, the industry does get kind of unfairly tarnished. They, they just assume that any kid can get a sportsbook app. And in a regulated marketplace, that's just not the case.
1: That is Steve McAllister. He is editor-in-chief of Gaming News Canada. Steve, really appreciate you taking time to talk about this today. Thank you.
2: Great to talk to you again, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML.
1: Monday at city hall, the LRT council subcommittee is going to be receiving a report from the city that suggests that when the LRT is up and running, whenever that might be, that it is a private contractor, a, a, an outsourced contractor that should be put in charge of running it for at least 10 years. The city can be in charge of things like ticket sales or customer service, but the actual operating of the LRT should be done by a outsourced contractor. The explanation for this is that this could help drive prices down because I think, and I don't even think this, I I know this, there are growing fears of how much this whole thing is going to cost. We don't know yet. And interestingly, and we'll get into this in a minute, interestingly, this report from the city still still doesn't give any idea of what it's going to cost to operate this system. That is the probably the number one piece of information people want to know. What is it going to cost? We still don't have any idea. Yet in spite of that, the suggestion is a cons- an outsourced contractor should get this. Well... I am reasonably confident that my next guest is not going to like that idea too much. His name is Eric Tuck. He's the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union, Local 107. That's the group that looks after the HSR drivers and employees. Eric, how are you tonight? I'm good, Scott. How are you, sir? I am good. How would my guessing be about the fact that you're not going to be a fan of that idea?
4: You're 100% correct. (laughs) Uh, we've, We've advocated from the very beginning that uh, if we're going to have an LRT here in Hamilton, we're going to invest $3.2 billion of taxpayers' money uh, and be on the hook for the operational costs and maintenance costs uh, going forward. uh, We want to make sure that we get the very best LRT system that we can for our city. And I can tell you uh, when it comes to a private system, uh, they don't compare. They never have.
1: Why? Okay, so you and again, look, people are going to understand that you've got an interest in this, and that's totally acceptable. That's why we're having you on here for your point of view. But why right. do you believe that a, a an HSR operated system would be operated better, more cost efficient, better generally than something that was contracted out?
4: So so there's a number of things. When you look at some of the privatized systems that uh, we've been dealing with, and I'll point uh, just down the highway to the Eglinton Crosstown, I'll point to Ottawa LRT uh, with the problems that they've had there. In fact, they've had derailments. They've had shutdowns for uh, the system go down for months at a time. Um, the the uh, city is still on the hook for paying those private consortiums uh, for the operations and maintenance of those uh, operations, even though they they were down more than they were actually up, and they were late coming on time uh, quite often when you privatize these uh, systems uh, are not coming in on budget they uh they do cut costs on the back of uh, their workers. The reality is you know we were promised for this three point two billion dollar investment that we would get a good return in terms of uh, community benefits such as good paying jobs. Uh, and you're not going to see that through a private uh, consortium. They cut corners. Their main uh, priority is to create profits for their shareholders. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with you know, profits and, and, and providing return on investment. But the reality is the biggest investor in this is the taxpayer. And we need to make sure that we get the best return on our investment.
1: Eric, you are absolutely correct on the point that many of the LRTs in Ontario and even outside of Ontario and Canada have not exactly been sterling examples of great transit. I mean, Ottawa has had innumerable problems. As you point out, the Eglinton West LRT is so far behind and over budget. It's almost incredible. Um, There have been other ones the flip side, though, is that the one that seems to be pointed at that has been reasonably successful and operated pretty well is Waterloo. That is a private-public partnership, is it not?
4: So so it is, and it was developed that way. But you got to remember, uh, when you look at the Kitchener LRT uh, versus the Hamilton LRT, uh, you're going through an older city right through the heart of the town, uh, and it actually is a very dense population, uh, where the layout of, of Kitchener is much different. That being said, uh, you've got to look at the track record. You don't know who you're going to get uh, when you put this out on an RFP. You know, Are you going to get that one, or are you going to get you know one of the three others uh, who have the dismal records? Are you going to bank on that? When you put the RFP uh, out, you don't have that uh, control. And, and at the end of the day, if things do go wrong, and they can go wrong, even if it's run in-house, Who's going to be held accountable? Who's going to be able to address the, the concerns of the public uh, when the system isn't running properly or when it is uh, derailed uh, and counselors are trying to get answers? We rely on our local council uh, to get us answers when things don't go properly with the services that we pay for. Uh, when, when you bring in a private consortium, uh, especially under the, the Metrolink um, RFP process, they're answerable to Metrolinks. They're not answerable to our city council. Um, so, you know, if you have a, a tragic accident or a derailment or something uh, similar to what was going on in Ottawa, uh, the councillors can't get any answers for the for the taxpayers, mm. uh, yet they still have to keep paying that bill every month.
1: I almost wonder, Eric, and I don't know what you think about this, I almost wonder why we're even having a report coming to council yet or to the subcommittee Until we have some idea what the cost is going to be, because quite honestly, as a taxpayer, I'm looking at this thinking, okay, you know what, if the money comes in, if the cost comes in at X and getting it to a contractor is going to be this and giving it to the HSR to your union is going to be something else, at least I can then see We, we could be. $2 million a part a year, we could be equal or we could be $30 million a part a year. Those things seem to matter, I'm thinking, to taxpayers about who's going to operate this.
4: So there's two things that are missing out of this report. You are correct. There is not an overall cost comparison uh, that's been done. Um, When you look at the comparisons or comparators that they use uh, and the scoring mechanism that this committee used, and I'll remind you, when they talk about city staff, this is not staff that is working at HSR operating our day-to-day transit system. The staff report that we are looking at is actually an LRT committee uh, report, staff report. Uh, so MetroLink's provided uh, you know so many dollars to set up an LRT office to hire staff. The staff that was hired uh, is actually uh, the director for, uh, from the Mississauga uh, LRT, uh, had very close ties to Metrolinx, understands the hoops and, the, and jumping through the hoops of Metrolinx. Uh, and I think that has somewhat tainted the, the view. That being said, when you look at the scores that they are using, they have a 35% uh, overall um, uh, point system for um, uh, customer service, uh, another 30% for accountability, and then 25% for reliability uh, and risk. Uh, And then there was a fourth category and and you'll have to forgive me. I've I've only seen the report of it like two hours ago. Fair enough. Really digested it fully. Uh, That being said, there's no score for safety. Uh, And when you think about it, HSR has been operating transit in this city for 150 years. ATU has been operating transit in this city for 125 years, Uh, safely, reliably, uh, and affordably uh, throughout the duration of history. That being said, uh, you also have to look at the fact that uh, when you talk about liability and risk, we've been running vehicles on these streets, large vehicles, and in fact, we we ran a rail system in this city, a street railway, and hence, hence the name Hamilton Street Railway, uh, for over 70 years in this city, uh, quite successfully. So there's absolutely no reason why you would take a Gold Star brand that has proven itself throughout history uh, and say, no, we're going to ignore that. And we're going to take a chance Mm. on a private consortium.
1: Eric, when the last uh, prediction that we got from the city, as far as I know, the last prediction we got from the city was that it was going to cost somewhere between 6.4 million a year and 16.5 million a year to run. Now that works out to, it could be as little to run as $457,000 a kilometer in Hamilton, in Toronto, they just came out with a report a couple of months ago that said it's going to be $3.6 million per kilometer. It's not even in the same ballpark. Do do you have any faith right now that the most recent Hamilton city prediction for what this is going to cost is remotely accurate?
4: So, no, as you know, when this project was first announced, it was announced in 2014 by Kathleen Wynn. she floated a billion-dollar system to start with to build it. Uh, and then, of course, that ballooned to $3.2 billion, and I'm guessing by the time the shovels go in the ground, you're going to be up around $5 billion. Uh, Probably. taxpayers' money. That's for the building. And you, your operational costs obviously are going to increase as well overall. So, no, we don't know what any of those numbers are accurately at this time. Um, but what I'm going to tell you is traditionally with, with transit systems and, and higher order transit, initially your costs are going to be much higher. But as you go throughout, uh, you know, in the long term, it starts to return. And that's one of the big concerns. When you privatize that system, any returns, long-term returns, are going to go into profits instead of going back into the system. Uh, You look at our beeline, that's the bread and butter of our entire transit system. That's the most lucrative part. uh, And you want to hand that over to a private consortium. And you just have to look at the 407, what, what we did with that years ago after we paid all the money to build it. Uh, it got handed over to a private company to run and now it's the most expensive highway in North America. Uh, why, why would we go down that road? We know, uh, throughout history, we've invested in major projects. Yes, there's a big upfront cost, uh, and investment, but the long-term goals, and you look at the subways, the long-term Return on subways, uh, any major high order transit. Yes, initially it does cost a lot more, but when you keep it in house, eventually it turns around and it starts funding the the rest of the the system.
1: That is Eric Tuck. He's the president of the Amalgamated Transit Union Local 107. Eric, thank you for this.
4: Not a problem. Thank you, Scott. I appreciate the opportunity.
1: The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.